Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Flashpoint Podcast. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. We are walking you through the flames. This week, the debate focuses on the aftermath of a hate-filled rage at a Pittsburgh synagogue that ended with 11 dead in a faith community working to pick up the pieces. Layers of shock and the feeling of helplessness was quite extreme. The recent uptick in anti-Semitism and efforts to curb the hate. 57% spike in anti-Semitism across the country. People have a right to come to their institution of worship and be safe. What houses of worship are doing to keep the faithful safe. Pennsylvania is poised to make midterm election history more ways than one. There are eight women on the ballot. He's expected to turn out and why? We dig in as we count down to November 6th. We'll be right back. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program. Organ donors save lives. Register today at donors1.org. This is the Flashpoint Podcast, where we talk about the issues that get everyone hot and bothered. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. The focus is the aftermath of the massacre at the Tree of Life Synagogue, where 11 faithful lost their lives. These were truly good people. The final funeral for the victims was held on Friday, just one day after the alleged gunman, Robert Bowers, pled not guilty and demanded a jury trial. He faces 44 counts, including for hate crimes. He had made anti-Semitic comments online and continued the day he was arrested. Suspects talking about uh, all these Jews need to die. This comes as anti-Semitism in America is on the rise. So why the hate and how do we move forward and what can be done to keep the faithful safe? With me in the studio to discuss this flashpoint is Robin Burstein. She's Senior Associate Regional Director at the Anti-Defamation League. We also have Naomi Adler, President and CEO of the Jewish Federation of Greater Philadelphia. And finally, we have Derek Grant. He's Co-Director of Security for Sharon Baptist Church, and he's a longtime public safety officer. Everybody, welcome to Flashpoint. Welcome. Thank you. Naomi, I want to start with you. I mean, what has been the reaction within the Jewish community in response to this tragedy that took place? at the Tree of Life? Well, first of all, this was the most horrific experience that the Jewish community in America has had within a synagogue. Um, and so the response was in layers, right? It happened on the Jewish Sabbath, the Shabbat. And so a number of people were hearing about it while they too were in synagogue or right afterward. So the layers of shock and the feeling of helplessness was quite extreme. We immediately heard from our community in the greater Philadelphia area that they wanted to come together. So they looked to the Jewish Federation and the Jewish Community Relations Council to first create a series of visuals and one in particular, which was interfaith downtown at Road of Shalom. Yes. And then they asked immediately, could we convene and be convened by the Jewish Federation for a security briefing on Monday morning? So that was initially what was going on. A security brief, just to see, to explain the security briefing. So the security briefing was convened by our director of community security, Frank mm. Real, who is an employee of the Jewish Federation. And the Jewish community has been targeted for many, many years. So yeah. the Jewish Federation works with organizations such as the ADL um, to ensure that everyone is trained. So immediately, the leaders of all kinds of synagogues and Jewish institutions asked for an update. Yeah. We provided one with the Department of Homeland Security, the FBI, the Police Department of Philadelphia, and of course, Frank Real, our community security director, to remind people of what they need to be doing and to ensure that everyone had 
everyone's contact information and understood what it meant to do the best you could to keep your community secure. And Robin, I mean, we were told that Robert Bowers, a 46-year-old gunman, used uh, hate speech on a site called Gab. Can you talk about hate speech? And and he had actually indicated that he was going to take some type of action here. Yeah, so on the profile that we believe is his on the mm-hmm. Gab website, he has a lot of anti-Semitic posts using language like Jews are the children of Satan, kike infestation, filthy evil Jews, stop the kikes. Um, diversity means chasing down the last white person. Um, he apparently said, sent a Gab post with a picture of a crematoria with the words, make ovens 1488 oh degrees goodness. again. Mm. The number 14 refers to a 14-word mantra um, used by white supremacists, and 88 refers to Heil Hitler. Very dedicated anti-Semite, probably white supremacist. There's a line here, because a lot of people say, you know what, a lot of this is protected speech, but he indicated that this was more than just speech. I think he said something like, screw the optics, I'm going in. Yeah. Right? And so I don't know that Prior to the act happening, anyone who re- read that would know that that was any kind of a threat. Mm-hmm. You know, hindsight is twenty twenty. Yeah. And so now we know what he meant when he wrote those words. Yeah. yeah mainstream America and particularly the Jewish community were not on this Gap uh, social media site. He literally, from what we understand, and of course there'll be more details coming out, he looked for a place where there would be a huge gathering of Jews in the Tree of Life Synagogue, there actually is more than one congregation that comes together in that institution in Pittsburgh. It's a very close-knit yeah. community. The Jews are all within one major area. Uh, and so he was looking for that. And he happened to be in the Pittsburgh area. And yeah. that was what he decided to target. Yeah, I will yeah. say what we learned is that our, the community security officer in Pittsburgh had just recently done an active shooter training within the Tree of Life Synagogue. Yeah. And so there are people who reported who survived, obviously, who reported that they actually knew more what to do as a result of that training. And so it's a good thing that that training had occurred. Derek, I mean, you work with a lot of faith institutions, specifically for your church, as people uh, start to beef up their security. My um, condolences and yes. sympathy goes out to the people from the synagogue, that community and the city of Pittsburgh. Because um, that is a, a tragedy that's going to go down in history. It's going to take a long time for them to recover from that. When we have incidents like this, usually I get a lot of calls on what can we do to mm-hmm. further train our people? Or what can we do to if churches do not have a security ministry or synagogue? Sometimes I get calls just to know how should we start to set up one? And that's what I do. Teach churches who don't have a security ministry how to step up, how to choose people. And to to the basic things you have to do to provide protection and security for your church. Yeah, and that's and that's what you do and to help uh, faith based institutions. And I know you got a spike of calls recently. That that is correct. Um, Saturday afternoon after the incident happened, as a matter of fact, we had just finished having a security meeting at my church. It's it's an ongoing thing where we improve, we train, we change things around. And right after the meeting. I heard it on the news, and I said, I can't believe it happened again. But the thing is, I always mention to people, is it's not a matter of if it's going to happen. It's a matter of when. So what we have to do is take measures to prepare 
and lessen the severity of this happening. I just want to back up a second. We've had a rise in acts of bias. We've seen a rise in acts of hate. Where is this coming from and what is the basis of this ADL tracks incidents of yeah. anti-Semitism and has been tracking incidents of anti-Semitism since um, 1979. Our records show that 2017, there was a 57% spike in anti-Semitism across the country. That can include assaults, vandalism, uh, harassment. And of that 57%, Pennsylvania came in at about 43%. A 43% increase in anti-Semitic incidences in 2017 over Mm -hmm. 2016. The numbers mostly are attributed or or a big part of that numbers are attributed to incidents that are happening in our schools and on our college campuses. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Those have almost doubled. Wow. Um, And so we are seeing with the rhetoric and the Um, lack of civility and the increased polarization that is going on in this country, people acting out in ways that they had not acted out before. And can we go a little bit deeper? Because I want to give a historical lesson about the history of the types of attacks that Jewish people have suffered. Well, what I can tell you is that Jews have been targeted for hundreds, if not thousands of years uh, and pushed out of almost every country in the world. Um, And as It's interesting. The population of Jews across the entire world is 0.02%. But the number of targeted hate speech moments as well as actions um, is quite large for us as a minority. And, you know, as pogrom after pogrom, which means, you know, a, a concerted effort by a government entity to push Jews out to another place has continued in our history, a number of Jews have become not only sensitive to it, um, but proactive to make sure that there's interfaith outreach, that there are organizations like a Jewish federation that organizes the Jewish community and keeps them safe, as well as an organization like ADL. We are a minority that because of our history of this happening on so many different levels, um, and in America we have the history just like we do in many other countries, um, we track it and we've been able to show um, recently a spike, but honestly it's a – It's something that's happened over a number of years. Uh, In America, however, a number of us thought 10, 15 years ago that the numbers would just remain either flat or decline because we've spent so much time in school systems and on college campuses, and many generations have received education about fighting racism. Um, Clearly, we've got a lot of work to do still. Yeah. And when you hear this, Derek, and we'll, I'll mention that in Kentucky <laughs> this weekend as well, two uh, African-American senior citizens were killed moments after the gunman there had tried to break into a black church. And I, I don't think it's just limited to hatred of Jews. I would say or that faith. Yeah. yeah, I would say that is it lies dormant. And what mm. we seem to forget is that this Hatred lies dormant in a catalyst somewhere along the line in America within the last few years. A catalyst has energized this movement. Anything you don't agree with, yeah. we must go out and attack it. And um, I mean, but but faith, houses of faith typically have open doors. You know, I grew up in the church. The door for the church was rarely locked. But now, you know, you have... Uh, over the past few years, I mean, churches that never before, they're, they're, everybody's installing security systems. They have secure now secure security at the doors. I mean, uh, I, what are you hearing from folks? Well, well, this is what, what I teach in my um, 
security um, ministry workshops that churches have always had some type of security. We have become complacent in America. But if you go into the first temple, which is Solomon's temple, you will find out that they had guards at every gate. Mm-hmm. So this is not nothing new. And Naomi, I know synagogues have had, and I know a lot of mosques also have um, security systems in place. Right. I mean, remember, all three faiths are tied to a mandate to welcome the stranger. And we, I mean, if you're a student of Scripture, you know that in the Torah it says that we have an obligation to open our doors. We have an obligation to welcome someone. And therefore, we, it is really difficult, in particular in the Jewish faith, um, for our synagogues to become armed fortresses. Now, mm-hmm. if you go to Europe or you go to other places, it has become the norm because the government has decided to pay for it and make it the norm. That's not what America has ever been uh, pushing to any church or synagogue or mosque. Um, it is an unfortunate reality that a lot of different security measures have become incredibly important. But we always have to remember we're trying to balance that spiritual welcomeness um, that is part of the Jewish faith and the Christian faith and the Muslim faith. It's a very tough situation for all. The reaction is, okay, beef up security, we do all these things. But then there also has to be some type of monitoring and scanning. And, 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 but we have free speech in America. So hate speech is free speech. Yeah. It's protected under the laws. What's not protected is incitement. And so that's where you cross the line. People have the right to their belief systems and they have the right to say anything they want. Now, we can monitor their hate speech and we can watch it. We can keep track of who we know, the white supremacists who are extreme. We can monitor their activities to see if there's anything that we need to pay attention to or, or alert authorities to. But that's as far as we can go. And we've seen that almost every one of these actors, we've had a you know, devices sent to people who oppose our current president, President Trump. We've seen the the, the man who killed all these people at the synagogue with the man in, in Kentucky. All these folks had some kind of link to hate speech. The acts of these people, they are trying to threaten the community. They're trying to create fear and um, terrorize us. But I think if we all stand together, we will not let them win. It's the reason why, you know, after these instances, there is a human reaction to come together, right? So in Philadelphia, uh, we had, you know, over 1,500 people come to Road of Shalom down in Center City, and then another 1,200 in Elkins Park, and, you know, hundreds of others in the main line, in Bucks County, in Delaware, in Chester, People, their natural reaction is to come together, just like the natural reaction in Pittsburgh was to come together. And I think what's really important is major community leaders came together from all different faiths to say, we're not going to stand for this, to combat exactly what Robin said, the intimidation factor that is what the perpetrator of hate wants. And that's why this um, this weekend we've asked Uh, in particular Jews, but all people of faith, to go to their church or synagogue or mosque uh, in defiance of this play towards making sure that people will stay away. We don't want intimidation. Instead, we want people to feel like they can go to their house of worship and really be there with their community. So actually, we've told people who normally don't go to synagogue every week to go. Yes. 
And so how do you balance that, Derek? What are some of the things that these institutions can do? Well, well, first and foremost, we must realize that people have a right to come to their uh, institution of worship and be safe. They have they have a right to be safe and not be in fear that if I come here today, something might happen. So we must take the measures to make sure they are safe. Um, and at our church, we are we had developed a, a manual. It's called we use the acronym of SEEP. CEEP, which stands for Catastrophe Emergency Evacuation Plan. And it's not just active shooter um, only, but it's indication of anything, any emergency situation that could arise, whether it's medical, smoke, fire, or just a natural disaster. And what we do is we, we constantly train people. We have coordination of efforts of the different ministries in the church working together in the event an emergency happened. Will know everybody will know their role, how to get everybody out safe. So you you have to you have to plan that. As a matter of fact, FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, as a result of terrorist activities in college campuses in the eighties and nineties, developed a manual. It's a guideline, a high quality guideline of emergency operation plans that would help and is geared towards the house of worships. They have a five point plan system in there. And you can Google it or go online and get it. And the main thing, the main points, I'll just hit on a few of them here, is prevention, which is um, it, it teaches you how to necessarily or to avoid or detect a, 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 an attack or something like that. You know, to be aware, be alert. And you also have um, um, the response and recovery. And what do you do after something happened that would bring everything back to normal? So you have, you have to realize that the old way of doing things is gone forever. We must make sure that our people who go to these institutions are secure, but at the same time, welcome open arms for everyone to come in yeah. and, and worship. We, that's how we have to do it. We have to, yeah. They have to come knowing that you're going to be secure yeah. in this place. Yeah, because how, how can you close your, I mean, how can you bow your head and pray if you're constantly worried? Yeah, Right, right. and just jumping off of what Derek said, on ADL's website, ADL.org, very simple. There is a manual that people can print that's a PDF called Protecting Your Religious or Communal Institution. Yeah. And it has all kinds of best practices that religious organizations, all religious organizations will be able to read through and benefit from and pick what applies to them and what they would like to be able to put in place to make their congregation yeah. safer. We have to be proactive. But how do we get back to to normal, Naomi? I mean, this is it's only been a few days. Of course, it normalcy won't return so soon, but how do we get back to a place where we can, you know, where we do feel safe and that we can go to our house of worship and bow our heads and not be, you know, traumatized? Like I know so many people are. Sure. Well, first of all, it takes a community um, to work together. And the first thing that we said to all of the members of the synagogues who were so concerned about what to do next was to be prepared and to be thoughtful, right? So the things that can be done, even before you read anything, is to sit with your board, because every house of worship has a board. Sit with the board, figure out, I love the way you said it, ministry, right? Sit and figure out who's going to take this on. Make sure that there are volunteers as well as professionals that literally talk about this on a regular basis, that do You know, for us in our office, we have certain months where we say we're going to do fire drills, we're going to do active shooter drills, so that we have it as part of our regular part of business. That helps to calm people down. If if they know that there are people who are assigned this task 
And if they know they're on a regular basis talking about should we have exits versus entrances and what should it look like and what does welcoming look like versus what does security look like, if they know that this is on people's radar and they see it, as well as they're informed by emails or by regular bulletins, that's what helps make people calm and feel like they're part of a real community that's concerned about them. You know, we have caring community committees in most of our Jewish houses of worship, and we know that a lot of them think about the sick and the needy and how to get people to, but now we've told them, look, talk about how we can make sure security is part of the caring community. The other thing that I would say is that um, every single law enforcement officer has talked about see something, say something. And now we have to remember that it's in our house of worship too, right? There could be something that's out of place, a person that doesn't look right, whatever it may be. And, of course, there have to be people on site who are thinking about it, who are not just so involved in their prayer but are also thinking about the safety of the community And that includes, by the way, the professionals, the rabbis, the cantors, the Jewish educators that are in our uh, entities, and of course, the imams, pastors, ministers, and priests, so that we train them. So actually, the ADL and the Jewish Federation um, very often meet with members of clergy teams to remind them of their duties, too. In Orthodox and conservative synagogues in which they cannot or don't use or don't choose to have a phone on, uh, and in Reformed congregations too, and Reconstructionist uh, organizations, they all should know that there has to be one or two people who actually will have the phone available in times of need to save a life. Uh, So that there is a tech system. The Jewish Federation has an immediate tech system where if there's an active shooter in a particular community, that someone will see the text and that they know what to do, and that the rabbi and the cantor uh, and any other major volunteers that are there yeah. know exactly what to do. Communicating that out to them and to the community and in the community's congregation really is a way to step back and return in yeah. some part to normal. And I got to ask this question because, you know, when, when there was that school shooting at Parkland, they said if the teachers had guns, you know, the bad guy, yeah, got to ask it. Should the, should people in the house of worship be armed? Should there be people within houses of worship that have guns that could take out these shooters? And I gotta well, ask, I gotta uh, ask it. And, and and that's a fair question because it's a controversial topic. But it's like this: whereas firearms might be a answer, it is not the answer for everything. In certain situations, that may have been true. If it comes up. I can't address the issue at the synagogue from a tactical standpoint because I was not there. But if you have trained people in some instances, that could be that could help the situation. But that's not overall. And I don't want to give people the the um, lead people the wrong way to think that the whole thing about security is only involved people with guns in church because that is far from the There's truth. a lot of other security measures you can put that, that don't uh, include firearms. Yes. More correct. guns are not the right. answer. We right. believe that collaboration between law enforcement mm-hmm. and the lay leaders and the professional leaders in houses of worship is the best way for them to ensure their security. Because this is a flashpoint, we have to wrap this up. What should people of faith do, number one, to curb some of this hate? And number two, to stay safe? Hatred. Just recognize that it does exist and we have to do what we can 
to promote the people who don't think like that and speak out against this hate. Do you know every year in the city of Philadelphia, they have a, they have a interfaith peace march. That should be swelled to so many people that, you know, can barely contain it. I think the most important thing that we can do moving forward is to demand civility. Mm-hmm. Um, words matter. And it's time for us to demand that our leaders denounce hate. I think it's time for people of all faiths and ideologies to speak out against all types of hate, anti-Semitism, racism, everything, and ensure that we have a future that we can have people who have different opinions and different ideologies but still can talk to each other and come up with some kind of common sense solutions. Yeah. So every single person can make a difference in the fight against hate. Everyone can monitor social media. Everyone can come together and pray. Everyone can promote dialogue. And everyone needs to make sure that the way that they listen and respond is with respect and with very clear speech back. Um, If I've known or learned anything over the last few days is that um, we need to remind people to act as a community. We can't just be... um, exposed to the news and and say that's just too bad or that's awful. We have to make it as a call to action. If we believe that there's something that needs to be done, we can't just sit in the sidelines. We have to act together and we also have to act individually to take responsibility for this speech. Well, I want to say thank you to Naomi Adler. Thank you to Robin Burstein and thank you to Derek Grant for coming on Flashpoint and talking about this issue in the news. Next up, a deep dive into the numbers in advance of the midterms. Almost anything can happen. How Pennsylvania is poised to make history. We'll be right back. This is the Flashpoint Podcast, where we talk about the issues that get everyone hot and bothered. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. And one thing that gets Pennsylvania residents hot under the collar is this upcoming election. Polls are predicting a higher than normal turnout on November 6th as more women than ever make a run for office. The Commonwealth is poised to make history, and Democrats are hoping for big wins months after the Pennsylvania Supreme Court redrew congressional maps. So what are the races to watch? With us is Franklin and Marshall political poster, Terry Madonna. Professor, welcome to Flashpoint. Well, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Pennsylvania midterms just a couple of days away. Please give us an overview of the big races that folks will be looking at. Let's start with the fact that in the recent uh, Franklin and Marshall College poll, we found that 70% of Pennsylvania voters are very interested in the 2018 midterms. Put another way, 7 out of 10 of our voters are following the election, and we're going to see a larger turnout of both Democrats and Republicans than we've seen in recent midterm elections. And by the way, similar proportions of Republicans and Democrats say that they're very interested in the election, and it's almost uh, anything could happen. Now, I think we can explain what that means, but by and large, a big turnout. And so when you think of what are the issues that are drawing people out? How many different ways can you spell Trump? (laughs) Yeah. It's a lightning (laughs) Uh, rod, huh? Yeah. The president is really motivating it with Democrats coming out and saying, we're voting because we don't like the president. We don't like what the president is doing. We don't like his agenda. Uh, We don't like his style and his personality. 
And conversely, Republicans saying exactly the opposite. They like the president's agenda. They like his style. They like his personality. They like the way he's governing. And he's essentially the motivating force in the upcoming midterm, not just for Pennsylvania, but around the country as well. And by the way, the other aspect of it is which party controls Congress. Obviously, Democrats want Mm -hmm. to take over both the House and the Senate and Republicans want to defend the House and the Senate. So huge proportions of Pennsylvania voters will be casting their ballot mainly on that basis. Yeah. And when you think about it, I mean, Pennsylvania could make history. I mean, we have women running. We have all sorts of things happening. Currently, Pennsylvania does not have a single female in the congressional delegation. Pennsylvania has never elected a female governor or a female senator, and they're not going to do it for those latter two offices now for obvious reasons, because there's no women on a major party ticket. But if we go to Congress, Pennsylvania does not have a female in the 18-person delegation. Uh, There are eight women on the ballot Mm. running for Congress this year. And the way it looks at least three and conceivably four, perhaps even more likely four women will be elected on November 6th. That will be the largest number of women to represent the state of Pennsylvania in its history. With uh, the pro-Kim, Mary Gay, Scanlon race, you know a woman's going to win there. By the way, they're all down in the Philly burbs where they're mm-hmm. likely to win or up in the Lehigh Valley in the 4th, the 5th, the 6th congressional districts. There. That's basically Montgomery, Delaware, and Chester counties. Now, there's scribbles of other counties that you know have part of those districts and then a seat up in the Lehigh Valley, uh, Charlie Congressman Charlie Dent's seat, which has been reconfigured. Mm-hmm. And there, uh, Susan Wilde looks more likely to win than not. So that would be four women that would go into the delegation. Wow. And so let's talk about this. I mean, because earlier this year, we had the the entire map redrawn. How is the the redrawn map going to impact what happens on November 6th? Well, they're going to have a huge effect. I mean, in 2011, after the Republican-controlled legislature designed the map back then, and Tom Corbett, a Republican governor, signed that legislation into law. The Republicans won 13 of the 18 congressional districts. The Democrats, obviously, five. 2012, 2014, 2016, at the end of those elections, it was 13 to 5. The new map issued by the Supreme Court earlier in the year after it struck down the 2011 map definitely gives the Democrats an opportunity to pick up, and my estimate, based on a variety of factors, is from three to five seats. Wow. So the Democrats could go from five to eight, from five to ten. Actually, they have six seats now because they won a special election Mm -hmm. out in the western part of the state earlier in the year, but it wouldn't shock, I think, any analyst if if the Democrats get nine, ten, or eleven it could end up 9-9. Nine, nine. That would be interesting, wouldn't it? It nine, would. Nine. <laughs> they would cancel <laughs> nine, each other out. Yeah. Nine Democrats, nine Republicans. They would have nice uh, little Pennsylvania congressional sessions together, wouldn't it? You would. Very, <laughs> very interesting. Did you guys do any polls on what voters or what key issues are, are big among voters in Pennsylvania? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it largely depends on whether we're talking about state issues or federal issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, but health care has... Healthcare has emerged as a really significant mm-hmm. issue, and 
for Democrats, they're raising the question that when they're running against Republican incumbents, yeah. they're going to argue that the Republican incumbents who voted to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act and cast other votes, often in committee, that they basically are denying coverage, making it impossible for individuals with pre-existing conditions mm. to gain or to earn, to win, to buy, however you want to put it, yeah. uh, health care coverage. And that has emerged in many congressional districts as a key issue, if not the single most important issue. But there's no doubt that the economy and immigration and taxes, they all consistently loom large when we get into you know the specifics about what voters really care about. And that's on the federal level. On the state level, we do have the governor's race. To make a long story short, every single independent poll, every one, all year, has shown Governor Wolf with a double-digit lead, yeah. as does our poll. It seemed like uh, Wagner didn't do very much to help himself with having to apologize for yeah, uh, making for, you know threats against the governor. Well, what he basically said was that Governor, he did a Facebook video, which they took down facing huge criticism across the state, was that the governor needed to put on a catcher's mask because he was going to stomp on his face with golf cleats. To be candid... I don't think he meant that literally, but yeah. you and I both know in this environment where there's all too much violence going on, mm-hmm. and we've seen that literally with the pipe bomber, with that horrible, horrible massacre out in Squirrel Hill at a Jewish synagogue about mm-hmm. that kind of rhetoric is awful and needs to be stopped. And so that didn't help the Republican candidate for governor, Scott Wagner. In fact, over the last several weeks, Mm. As voters have gotten to know him better because of his campaigning and commercials, his popularity has dropped. Wow. So I think activities that uh, he's engaged in have certainly not helped him. But the bigger issue seems to me, if you want to defeat an incumbent, you need to give the voters a reason that they care about. And he hasn't found one with Governor Wolf. I'm not saying Governor Wolf's perfect, but he's not found an issue that resonates with the voters. There have been no income tax hikes. There have been no sales tax hikes during his administration. Yeah, he didn't sign a couple of budgets, but the state, you know, the state's programs, the mm-hmm. state's bureaucracy function, the state services function. The voters weren't put out, put out by, you know, not getting some state service because of that. And just in this year's budget, they increased it by almost 3%. But here's what's important. They put a billion dollars more into education, into the schools, and that's one of the key issues over the last four or five years in our state. Yeah, and I've seen Wolf out on the trail talking about that, touting that as one of his big accomplishments. And so it looks like Wolf and Fetterman will likely be successful on November 6th. I don't end elections, but I like the way you put that because would likely, we're not certainly ending them. I will tell you, you, you get a feeling in this election with all the polarization, you just get the feeling that almost anything can happen. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. That all the information we have in the research and the models that we use to do these forecasting, you, you just have to be really careful. But, but candidly, it does look like the Democrats are going to win both the governorship and Senator Casey will be reelected. And I'll put it this way, are likely to win. I'm not ending the election. I'm not, uh, you yeah. know, the voters will do that on November 6th. Around Philadelphia, everybody's paying attention to the congressional races. Are there Correct. any that you say are really, really tight? 
Well, obviously the first congressional district, uh, I, I don't think there's a doubt that uh, Representative Fitzpatrick is in the battle for his political career against the uh, wealthy Scott Wallace, and that race is, in the few polls that have been done, how many different ways can you say nip and tuck? Yeah. Or put another way, within the margin of error of the poll. So it, this is uh, the, this is boiling down. That race, by the way, several weeks ago, the last time I saw a number, had $7 million in outside money that had poured into it. It will be the most expensive congressional race in our state. Wow. First, I don't even yeah. think I don't even think and at this point we still don't know who will win but the way to think about it uh, for your listeners is simple if indeed there is a substantial blue wave meaning democrats turning out more frequently than republicans then Fitzpatrick is in trouble if indeed it's a trickle meaning not a big blue wave mm -hmm. and republicans turn out more frequently then Fitzpatrick could hold on to the seat. It's all going to boil down to turn out by party. Yeah, but Pennsylvania, I mean, is by far a Democratic state. So statewide elections, we tend to, to go Democratic if the turnout is, is what it's supposed well, to be. Well, yeah, and right now, the, remember, the Democrats have 850,000 more active registered voters than Republicans, but both parties' voters are motivated. The problem is if Democrats and Republicans are about equally motivated, they're just more Democrats than Republicans. But you have to remember, statewide, we have two U.S. senators. One of them's a Republican, and we just had Republican yeah. governor elected in 2010 and lost re-election to Governor Wolf in 2014. So it really does matter. And Governor and President Trump carried our state by 44,000 votes in the presidential election. So the state does lean more Democratic, but and also the state legislature is in Republican hands. Yeah. Even though there are more Democrats, I agree with you. It's got to, you know, the Republicans have done pretty well in a state with far more Democratic registered voters. Uh, we'll all be watching. Uh, any prediction on the percentage of turnout? Typically, 40% of eligible voters turned out eligible now, not registered. Mm -hmm. If it reaches 50% of eligible voters, it, it, I won't be shocked. Maybe 60, 55, 60 percent of registered voters. I don't know that it'll reach that, but I wouldn't be shocked if it did. And it's because you have this lightning rod called President Donald Trump that is getting it. everybody shocked <laughs> and getting them out to the polls. So with that, I want to say thank you so much, Professor Terry Madonna, for coming on Flashpoint and talking about this issue in the news. Hey, anytime. Next up, they're hoping to galvanize women to arm women with specific skills in an effort to turn the pink wave into a tsunami. We'll be right back. But first, here's this week's Flashpoint on the Tweets with Flashpoint associate producer Brianna Bonds. Hey, Brianna. Hey, Cherry. That's right. We're taking it to the tweets, getting your opinion on the Flashpoint topics everybody's talking about. So this week, after the horrendous shootings at the Tree of Life Synagogue, we took it to the tweets and we asked everybody, should houses of worship, churches, synagogues, and the whole group of them hire armed security? And the choices were, yes, for safety. No, makes things worse. Depends on beliefs and not sure. Pretty strong response to this. 57% said no, makes things worse. Yeah, folks don't like the idea of bringing in guns to churches and synagogues and mosques. I mean, it's just a horrible day if we have to do that. Yeah, 29% said yes for safety. 
And there are some um, places of worship that do have armed guards. Yeah. There is a percentage of people who think that guns would help a situation. The president recently said that. Yeah. And I just wonder, I don't know if that would have saved all the lives in this situation. Um, And it's really tragic that 11 people passed away because of this gunman. Very. So that's all for this week's Flashpoint on the Tweets. Make sure to subscribe and follow us on Twitter at Flashpoint Show. Look for the hashtag Flashpoint Poll. Thanks for listening. This is Flashpoint, and I'm Cherry Gregg. We here at KYW are all about community, elected office, business, and perhaps everything is turning pink. Communication strategist and brand builder Desiree Peter-Kimbell has been a part of the budding rosy hue of dynamic women for over a decade. Desiree is now helping to support the wave of women with a program on a mission to deepen the shade of equality nationwide. She'll be hosting an event as local chair of the United States of Women to talk about the organization's galvanized program. She's here to tell us all about it. Welcome to Flashpoint, Desiree. Hi. I'm so excited to have you here at the I'm KYW Studios. excited to be here. Yes. <laughs> and so this, we were just talking. This is the get out the vote time. It is. This is this is a very this is a critical time. Yeah. And so you are first of all, tell people what this local because you are a chair of a a huge um, um, initiative. Tell us what it is. Yeah. So it's called United State of Women Galvanized Pennsylvania. It actually was started under the former presidential administration as United State of Women really trying to check in with women all around the country to figure out where are we as women in every uh, in every way. And so since then, it has grown to be a 501c3 nonpartisan movement to actually bring women together to have some really hard conversations, but then to train and to arm women with specific skills around everything from how to run, Mm. grassroots organizing, entrepreneurship, and actually explaining and selling and building your own brand. Yeah. And yeah. And, and that's something, I mean, women have to, you have to become yes. very savvy at that when you want to take a leadership role. Yeah. And so you, you're going to be galvanizing women here because Pennsylvania is a critical state still. It is. It's always in play. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But this is nonpartisan. I do have to say that oftentimes because... At the end of the day, we realize that we as women, we're not a monolith. Just yes, like any that's other very group. true. And so we do have very specific things that we want to talk about. But even breaking down the mold, we want to talk about things that bring us together, not divide us. Yes. We want to talk about things that we can align with, not things that we can separate on. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so regardless of whatever position you're running for, knowing how to run is extremely important. Knowing how to organize is extremely important. Knowing how to brand yourself, tell your story is extremely important. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we want to make sure that Pennsylvania did not lose out on that opportunity. We have some amazing, amazing partners. One of my two of my other co-chairs are uh, Lisa Nutter, uh, the former first lady of the city of Philadelphia, and Helen Cunningham, who has been a force in this city in terms of nonprofit world and arena. And we have a number of other members of our host committee. And and the reason for this is because we wanted to have folks and women who are typically not highlighted. Yeah, yeah. Right? So sometimes you go to cities and you get the same old people doing the same old thing. Mm-hmm. This is different. Yeah. We want to get those folks who are doing the work on the ground who normally don't get to talk about that work. Yeah. And so tell us about the program. So the program is November 17th at Moore College. It starts at about 11 o'clock. And we are hoping to get about 300 women at Moore College. We chose Moore College, if you think about women, right? Yeah. It just kind of makes sense. 
And throughout the day, we have speakers and talkers who are going to uh, share with us their stories, everything from Linda Sarsour, who's one of the co-founders of the Women's March, mm-hmm. uh, Marley Diaz, who is founder of A Thousand Black Girl Books, Stacey Cunningham from Wall Street, and we also have Donna Hilton, who if you ha- do not know who this woman is, you please, 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 please look her up. She's an amazing woman who has served, unfortunately, 27 years in jail, and uh, when she came out, became an activist for criminal justice reform, yeah. focusing on women. Yeah. Because oftentimes when we talk about criminal justice reform, women are left out. Women are left out. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. this is a whole conversation about women's issues in every sense of the word. So building economic capacity, investment, branding, like I said, marketing, but also in how to run if you're interested in running and then how to build in your communities. How do you leverage what you're doing on the ground and build capacity? That's yeah. going to be the focus. Yeah, I will say one thing about, you know, in the past couple of years we have seen is women who once said, you know, I won't get involved and I'll let other folks do stuff. The people are coming out. People are showing up and they're they're getting they're rolling up their sleeves and they're getting work done. They are. I mean, I think the reality is the definition of impact has changed. Yeah. Right. And so people have only thought, oh, to to be impactful, I have to be political. To be impactful, I have to be connected. To be impactful, I have to be this. No, to be impactful, you just have to have purpose. Yeah. You have to have a focus and a purpose on what it is that you want to do, right? What do you want to impact? Education, community, your kids, your kids' school, you know, your your street, your neighborhood, your country, your city. Government impacts everything. And so I've been in the government space for a really long time on various levels. And, you know, it's not easy. I tell people I've had, you know, I've had a gun pointed at me. I've watched a councilman get killed in in front of me in New York City Hall when I worked for Mayor Bloomberg as a senior advisor there in 2003. That is the point I thought that politics broke me. Yeah. Um, when a shooter came into City Hall and mm-hmm. I walked him in and he pointed the gun at me after shooting a councilman. Yeah. And I tell people all the time, you cannot let things silence you. You cannot let experiences try to silence you because then you let it win and you let them win. Yeah. So that's what my career has been about. And that's what Galvanize, the Galvanize program is about. A hundred percent. It's bringing all these women from all over the state. Yes. Right. UnitedStateOfWomen.org. Thank you so much to Desiree Peterkin Bell. You know what? Thank you. Keep doing it and making a lot of impact. I will. I try my best no matter what. All right. (laughs) All right. Thanks. That's it for Flashpoint. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Flashpoint Show. You can also follow me at Cherry Gregg. You can subscribe to the Flashpoint Podcast for exclusive content using the Radio.com app, Apple Podcast app, or other platforms. Simply search Flashpoint KYW. There's an issue that makes you hot under the collar. Let us know. and We'll walk you through the flames. As the late Nelson Mandela once said, people must learn to hate. If they can learn to hate, they can be taught to love or love comes more naturally to the human heart. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. Until next week, thanks for listening.